Good morning again, brothers and sisters. I trust that you are having a blessed time with us. We pray for thanks to the Lord Jesus that we could gather together like this. And even though, as I have said, even though it is online, we trust that the Spirit of God works. In those of us who need to be built up, who need to strengthen our relationship with you, O Lord, that's the most important thing we can do. It's a privilege that we have as believers in Christ. We also thank you that we have the means to present a sermon from each and every person that is preaching on a Sunday, Lord, and we have to glorify your name. Even though we can't gather, you have made it possible at this time with technology that we can we can at least get the word out, we can at least still fellowship together in spirit and in truth, Lord, and we pray that you, you be with us. We're looking at a message this week, we're going to look at Paul and his trip to Athens. And I was thinking at the beginning of prepping the sermon that Paul really, really came to a point of understanding and reasoning with the philosophical men. Probably there were women as well, but with the philosophical men at Athens. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17. Whilst I'm getting to the passage in the reading of Scripture, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We'll be reading a portion from verse 22 to 34. But as we look at this, we can see that Paul was bringing hope to the Athenians. He was on his second missionary journey. And so, understanding what is happening with COVID today, and everyone, obviously, as we can understand where they are coming from, is preaching about surviving in this time of COVID. And I want to relate the passage that Paul preached at the Areopagus to what we're going through today. In other words, the hope that Paul brought to them because of their mythology and because of their idolatry and all these things, I think it's very pertinent in today's time that we look at the same message. You know, our hope is Jesus. If you're listening today and you do not know Jesus, let me guarantee you that I have hope, even in these troubled times, that Jesus is Lord, that He is King, that He came to die for our sins. And that He reconciles us with the Heavenly Father. It's only because of Him, as we will see, that we live and we move and we have our being. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 22 to 34. Let's read the scripture. And then we will unpack the text and see what the Lord, in His word, is relaying to us today. Acts 17, verse 22 to 34. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times, and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, 
though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Verse 34, However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Aeropagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather together. Father, be with me as I preach this message that you've laid on my heart, that you've given me to preach. Lord, it's simple. We go to the text, we are obedient, and we, and we relay the text to the flock, to the, she- the sheep, Lord, that have, have been entrusted to each and every one of us. Lord, for in you we live and we move and we have our being. And I pray that we leave all our preconceived ideas at the door, with a believer or non-believer, and that we come with open hearts to the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us, please, Lord, and protect us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we can see, the idea behind the sermon, as I'm sure you've noticed now, is that it is in God, this creator of heaven and earth, that we live and we move and we have our being. And Paul cleverly constructs this message together with Luke being the author of the book of Acts, obviously through the Holy Spirit. And he shows us what Paul's reasoning is behind this message. And you'll see in verse 22, Paul starts, um, well Luke writes, but Paul is, is in the Areopagus, and it says there, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now Paul, as he was on his way to the Areopagus, as you'll see in the previous texts, you can see that Paul is in a marketplace, he goes to preach in the synagogues. As you know, this was Paul's custom. Paul went to every city and preached in the synagogue first. If there was one, otherwise you found another location. But that was the pattern that Paul was coming through. And what was happening is that Paul now decided he's going to go to the Aeropagus. Historically, the Aeropagus, as we know it today as well, is Mars Hill. And Mars Hill is set on a hill in Athens. And this is where the council got together. This is where the men of those days got together. The philosophical men. The men that wanted to bring in a new philosophical idea. Remember the Greeks were extremely uh, philosophically based. They wanted to come up with new meanings and reasons for life. And so Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is, is led. He's been preaching all over, and now he's led to the Oropagus. And I think it must have been quite daunting for Paul, other than him knowing that the Lord has got him. It's a similar thing for us today, if one of us might consider going to preach or make a defense for the faith the Christian faith, that we go to a, a famous university or a famous panel or some location that really is daunting. You can see what Paul might have been going through here. 
And Paul comes to the Oropagus. Now remember, he's got this council there, he's got philosophers there, he's got all these people there, and he stands in the midst of them and says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. In other words, that word religious is actually superstitious. The Greek rendering of the word looks at superstition in two ways. It looks at the superstition in a positive sense, and it looks at superstition in a negative sense. And if we look at the discourse that happens here and the dialogue that Paul starts with these Athenians, I would say that this is in a, um, in a sense that motivates them to know that they are zealous in trying to find the true living God. And we'll unpack that in a second. But the word here means that they were uh, devout believers, but they did not know which God to serve. They were devout without serving the only true God. So Paul noticed that they are very religious because in verse 23 he says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So as I said previously, he was in the marketplaces, in the synagogues, he was roaming the streets of Athens, and what he noticed was an immense amount of idolatry going on. Similar to when Israel came into the promised land, they purged the land of sin. They had to purge the land of those believers that did not want to turn to serve the living God, Yahweh. They also were idolaters. They had ba uh, Baal, they had Asherah, they had um, Molech. They had all these gods that they served, all these temples made with hands. And so Paul is seeing the exact same picture here. He's in Athens, he's roaming around and he sees altars of Zeus. He sees altars of Hermes. He sees altars of Diana. He sees all these altars. And remember, these are all men and women. These are flesh. Yes, there are statues now, but they were flesh. But the Greeks, the mythological way that they were looking at life was that they saw, they saw these people as gods. Whether it be fertility gods, whether it be a sun god, a god of agriculture, they did not know that there was one true God. Surely if that temple or that statue, rather, was made of man and of woman, there has to be something that created that statue. And this was the reasoning that Paul was bringing to the Areopagus. He says, I looked, there's your objects of worship, I saw all your objects of worship, but what really caught Paul's eye is that I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, many centuries before, there was a man by the name of Epimenides, and he erected this altar to the unknown god. There was apparently a plague in this area, in the area of Athens, and obviously they were praying to their gods and nothing happened. And Epimenides must have started to realize, listen, this is, this is not happening because these are mere mortals like us. We're mere mortals. But there's one infinitely greater than these mere mortals. And this is the one who this um, altar was erected to. It was to the unknown God. And so he, on his way to the Areopagus, or maybe in the marketplace, he saw this altar. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So Paul says that one of those altars that you've put up, the one that says to the unknown God, it's him who we are going to focus on today. In our discussion, in this panel among these people, among these philosophers, I'm turning everything on its head and I'm bringing you the one true God. I'm bringing you the God who I worship, who Paul knows. He even worshipped, remember before Jesus, 
and after Jesus, Paul worshipped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. However, it didn't stop there. The Lord changed Paul's life on the road to Damascus because he was persecuting the church of God. So Paul is talking from a place where he has had an immense experience with the Lord. He, Yes, he was under the law. Yes, he served under the law. And he's the very one that gives a defense in the book of Galatians 4 and the book of Romans between law and spirit, law and grace. But he knows the one that he's talking about because Paul can boldly go in and say to these men, I know the one that created those idols. I know the one that you look up to Zeus, this amazing strong man that you've put biceps on his, his, uh, his picture or his um, temple. Him, he's nothing. He's absolutely nothing. I met Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is what Paul is going to go around. So the one who you worship without knowing. In other words, they're worshipping this unknown God. They don't know him, but they're worshipping. And Paul says to, you, to him, I'm going to pro proclaim to you. Now look at Paul's reasoning. And this is what we must look at when we come to a um, discourse or a discussion or an argument or just, just friendly reasoning with someone. Is that Paul lays it out beautifully here how we are to go about this. Firstly, we have to understand where the people's background is. So the background in Athens is idolatry. The background in uh, Athens is temples, it's gods, it's mythology, it's superstition, it's all this and more. But Paul says, okay, I understand you're there. Here's your altar. Here's the unknown God. Now to him I'm going to talk to you about. So he gets their understanding of who God is. And their understanding of who God was, was evident there because they had an altar to the unknown God, yet they surely had to worship this unknown God because they even within them knew that this God was above all the other gods. Otherwise they wouldn't have had that inscription. It's to the unknown God. There's only one God and that's, that's God Almighty, Father, Son and Spirit. Verse 24, Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So he starts by saying everything that we know, whether it be trees, whether it be life, whether it be man, whether it be stars, universe, everything, this God, this unknown God that you do not know about, that you're serving, he's the one that made the heavens and the earth. This is what Paul is saying. It's the most beautiful way of coming to reason with someone. He's saying, oh, is that your interpretation of God? I'll show you who this Lord is. And this, we should, each and every one of us should actually be able to do this because your life and my life has to be transformed by the Spirit of God, by Jesus Christ Himself before we can come and create or start a dialogue with someone. There's nothing worse than seeing someone look at um, a believer or, or someone look at a non-believer, sorry, and you're trying to reason with him, yet you don't know that very God yourself. And my encouragement for us is to, this is why the Lord has given us this infallible book, this book that is without error, so that we can get to know Him, so that we can present Him to others. And this is what Paul is doing. He knows the Old Testament Scriptures. He knows the experience he had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, the God that you don't know about, He created the heavens and the earth. And He does not dwell in temples made with hands. Again, Paul is going through Athens. He's gone to Berea. He's been to Lystra. He's been to all these places. And there are temples everywhere. And I think it is in Ephesus where there's a temple of Diana or Artemis. This temple is massive. There still remains of that temple there today. 
He's saying the Lord, even though your beautiful buildings try and portray the gods that you serve, this God that we serve is outside of all of this. He is greater than all of that. He actually gave you the ability to create and you've used that creative ability to go and make a temple. This is the God that we serve. Paul is saying this is the God that I serve. And can we say today that this is the God that we serve? Amen to that. I think we do. I know in myself that the God that we serve is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the Lord is He's, he's amazing. He is above creation. He is above the heavens. He has given us life by His very, very breath and being. So He does not dwell in temples made with hands. And that's a lesson for us today as well. In the time of COVID, we want to get to church. But remember that the church is not necessarily what brings the presence of the Lord. It's believers gathering that brings the presence of the Lord. It's, it's those that come to gather in His name to worship Him, to sing His praises, to read from His Word, to come to confess their sins together, to bring other people to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the Lord is present. You can go look now in certain parts of the world where the, the most beautiful uh, temples are built or any building that you can look at. The Lord does not need to dwell in those buildings. And remember in the Old Testament time again, Israel had God dwell in the temple that Solomon built. But it was only a mere spectacle. A millimeter of God's presence was in that temple. It was His presence that was there, but He is great and above all and beyond. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath and all things. So Paul is continuing his argument here and he's saying, right, this unknown God... Who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all and he doesn't need to be worshipped. And temples don't need to be built for him. In other words the hands that we use to construct these temples he does not need. And that is a big lesson for us. Many many teach that God needs fellowship with man. God is self-sustaining. God does not need us. He created us for his glory but he does not need us. That's what we must understand. The Lord that created the heaven and the earth, earth is eternal. And if He is eternal, then He existed before this earth and this universe existed. So why would He need us if He was there already? He's always been there. And so this is the main thing that we have to understand. Is that those hands we tend to use and construct, and this is what the Athenians were doing. They were building it sort of to say, hey, uh, Zeus he has a temple for you. Uh, Hermes, he has a temple for you. We've constructed with our hands. It's beautiful. We've laid it with gold, with silver, all these things. And the Lord is saying, I don't need that. Paul is saying to them, oh, God doesn't need that. We don't need to build anything to this Lord. We know Him. We worship Him. The reason why Paul says that at the end of verse 25, is he says, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Everything you have is given by God. Whether your salary, which is your take home at the end of the month, whether the meal on your table tonight is considered, every single thing you and I have is a gift from God. Remember in James chapter 1, all good and perfect things come from the Father of lights, in whom there is no partiality. He does not show partiality. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate, slow in anger, but rich in love. And this is slow to anger. And so, 
we can see that the unknown God is the one that gives life and breath to all things. If you're even an unbeliever, He gives you the mercies and the grace to go on to find Him, to grope for Him, as we'll find out just now. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. So what is, what is Paul saying to him? He's saying, first of all, the Lord gives us everything. He created everything. And he's saying, from one man, from one man, which is Adam, we're all a product of Adam. We all come from Adam. The first creation that God made was the man Adam. We all come from him. And as you'll see now in today's day and age, if someone had to trace it back to Adam, or they trace our DNA, our gene- genealogical pool back, it goes back to two people, Adam and Eve. Right? The evolutionist will tell you you come from a monkey. That's his problem. I'm telling you, you come from Genesis 1 to 11. It's not myth. Genesis 1 to 11, brothers and sisters, is fact. It's proven. It is there. It's the most accurate um, evidence and proof we have historically of creation. And so we all date back to or go back to Adam. And this is what Paul is saying. From one blood, the first blood that is Adam, that's how we well, that's where we come from, Lord. And that's what he's saying to the Athenians. He's saying, Athenians, realize that the men that you have, these altars that you've built, these people that you've built, statues of, they are the product of Adam as well. They are men. They are mere mortals. Every nation of man to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So, in God's foreknowledge... In his omniscience, he's all knowledgeable. In all these characteristics that God has, you and I have been put in a specific place. And Paul is saying to the Athenians, brothers, or or Athenians rather, they weren't brothers yet, but Athenians rather, you have been put here by this mighty God that I'm presenting to you. You haven't been put here by random chance. You've been put here by the God that has pre-appointed your times and your boundaries. So, you're, for example, I was born in South Africa, as many of us were. The Lord knew. He pre-appointed that we would be born in South Africa. Our dwellings are in Johannesburg. He knows that we're in Johannesburg. This is the idea that Paul is bringing across. He's saying, there's nothing that can escape the glory of God. There's nothing that can escape on the adverse side the wrath of God. If you do not know Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior today, there is a day destined for wrath for you. And it's not pretty. And that's why the encouragement from Paul to the Athenians is turn from this idolatry. Turn from Hermes and Zeus and these men that have crumbled. They've died. But let me present to you the one who has risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The one who came as a bondservant to serve and to be served. Or rather to serve others. And that was the role of Jesus and the goal of Jesus when he came to this earth was to serve others. All the other gods and all these other people that are so-called um, God-like people, they all wanted to be served. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So we have our boundaries, we have the pre-appointed times, we have our dwellings, and our Paul says to the Athenians, The reason why this God, this Almighty God has done this, is so that you should seek the Lord. And you can see they were seeking the Lord in their own way to the unknown God. But it doesn't matter, you can call on the unknown God all you want. If you don't know Him personally, there is no salvation in that name. There is only a salvation in the name that is 
the only name under heaven by which man can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, right, you've got your dwellings, you've got all these things, but let me tell you something more. The reason why the Lord has done this is so that you can seek Him in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him. In other words, that you might be able to, to, to lift your hands up to Him and, and find Him. And just, this is the thing that Paul is trying to say. That you might grope for Him, look after Him, search for Him, seek Him, and that you might find Him. That is the will of the Lord, that each and every one of us might find Him. Each and every one of us might find Him. That's what the Lord is saying here. That is the hope that the Lord is bringing for us. And that's what Paul is saying to the Athenians. We go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, it's a message where Isaiah is obviously writing about the Babylonian exile, and he's giving the, the Jewish exiles comfort. Look at how um, Isaiah talks about Almighty God. Look what he says in a few of the verses. I won't read all of it, but I'll go to Isaiah 40 verses 12 to 14. Now this is the exact same thing I'm trying to present and show and bring to our attention is that look what Isaiah writes about God. And Paul is saying a similar thing to the Athenians. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Right? This is Isaiah writing about Almighty God. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Right, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. Now look at the similarity we're going to see here in the passage in Acts chapter 17. The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. You see, Isaiah knew the idolatry that was going on. Paul saw the idolatry. That was going on. Have you not heard? Have you not known? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. This is the God that we are talking about brothers and sisters. Is this the God that I'm presenting to you today? The one that Paul presented to the Athenians. Is it the God that you serve? Is it the God that you know? Is it the God that you relate to? Is it the God that you can present to other people? In Job chapter 37 and 38, God is having a dialogue with Job. We know what happened to Job. His whole family got ripped from him because the Lord gave Satan... Um, the right to go and test Job. Because Satan presented and said, Yeah, but your, your, your servant Job only serves you because you look after him. And the Lord God said, Well, go and I'll show you that he'll be faithful. And obviously with the counsel that he was receiving from his friends, which wasn't the greatest counsel, Job started questioning. And the Lord then comes back to Job with a few statements. Go read Job 37 and 38 in your own time to see how the Lord dialogues with 
Job, but look what he says in verse 22. Job 37, 22. With God is awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore men fear Him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. Right, just to give you an idea, this God that we serve is awesome in majesty. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God asks Job this question. Job must have fallen flat on his face. I would have fallen flat on my face. When God says he's going to test you, whoa, brothers and sisters, it must be, it must be terrifying. To be simply in the presence of the Lord, like the Apostle John when he received the revelation, he fell at Jesus' feet as if though dead. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God speaking to Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, folk, this God that Paul is presenting to the Athenians, this God that searched Job up and down, this God that gave Job a solid defense, not that he had to, but he did it in his grace and mercies, this God that Isaiah talks about is the same God that sent his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, folks, with Paul in Athens, he knows this Jesus. He met this Jesus on the road to Damascus. And therefore he could present him with boldness because he knew exactly who he is talking about. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Back in Acts chapter 17, back to our scripture for today, verse 28. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. What an amazing scripture, brothers and sisters. You see, to live, Paul is saying in the Greek, it's to, it's to have breath. It's to be able to breathe. You know, there's a song that goes, it's your breath in my lungs. That is the whole thing here, brothers and sisters. Whether you're a believer or not, it's by God's mere breath in our lungs that we are alive. For in Him we live, we breathe. We're not lifeless. That is what it means to live. For in Him we move. In other words, in other words it's to cause... It's to move, it's to set in motion. That is what that word means in the Greek. And the word has a, has a, a connotation to it of, in our um, sense of kinetics, or like the movie role playing. It's moving, the role is moving, the old school movie roles. That is exactly what the word is alluding to. In Him we live and we move. And lastly, we have our being in Him. It means we are. We exist because of Him. We are alive because of him. And what Paul is saying here is looking at what one of their poets have used. It's such a clever way of dialoguing with someone or reasoning with someone. If Paul says, I noticed, I know a bit of your history. And your, one of your poets said, we are also his offspring. And he's 100% right because we're going to look at back at Adam. We are all offspring of Adam. And so Paul is using that. And he's looking at this message and he's saying to the guys for in him we live and move and have our being so the God that I've presented to you today the unknown God 
The one who created in the heavens and the earth, and everything in it. The one who gives life to all. The one who blesses all. The one who pre-appoints our dwellings and our borders. It's Him. It's in that God that we live and we move and we have our being. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to these guys that are idol worshipping. And the question I suppose we have to present for ourselves today is, do we have any idols that are superseding the worship of God? This could be TV. Do we watch TV more than we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Have we actually come to the understanding of what God Almighty has done for us on that cross of Calvary? Have we been provoked to go and spend time with the Lord every single day? Do we understand what salvation is? And on that, have we been born again? Have you and can you say that you have been born again by the Spirit of God because in you dwells the Spirit that has changed you from being that man or woman that was in the world? Ungodliness, unrighteousness, wickedness, all those things that we can mention. Have you been transformed and are you living in Him? In this Jesus Christ. So if the poets have said, yeah, for we are also his offspring, verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, so what Paul is saying, well, exactly, since we are created by God, and from Adam we are his offspring, agreeing with what one of their poets have said, very cleverly using the argument from their perspective and from what they would understand, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So look what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, this is the thing. If you're saying his offspring, you're from his offspring, what, which one of your poets have said, and if you agree with that, then you cannot think of this divine being, this divine God who created everything. You cannot think of him as one that needs to be shaped by art and by man's devising. In other words, by man's plans, this God cannot be devised. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, Paul is showing us, and he writes to the Philippians, and I just want to show us how he writes to them as well, showing them about his relationship with Jesus. He says in verse 7, Philippians 3, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So remember, everything he gained by the law, he now counts as loss for the Christ. For Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Everything that Paul was a part of, he counts as rubbish. Everything I was a part of, I'm telling you now, brothers and sisters, I count as rubbish. It is all about Jesus Christ. Are you all? about Jesus Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. On the reverse side, are you found in Him? Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Our righteousness comes from faith in Christ. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, you are justified. You are now your, Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Do we know Him and the power of His resurrection? That is just absolutely amazing. And the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to resurrection. 
from the dead. Remember Galatians 2.20. Everyone loves the scripture. Many know the scripture. But is it actually applicable in your life? Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In him we live and move and have our being. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and who gave himself for me. That is the most beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. When, you, when Paul looks and he continues from verse 28, as we have it, in him we live and move and have our being, he's saying, okay, so if you're living in this God, then you are his offspring, because one of your poets have mentioned it. Remember that his argument is that the divine nature cannot be shaped like gold or silver or stone. And that's what Isaiah said as well. You try and fashion idols with gold and silver. It is irrelevant, brothers and sisters, when we look in the grander scheme of things, in, in salvation, in creation, all these things, there is nothing that you can put in your home. There is nothing that you can have in your car. Except, I know many of us have crosses. That's, that's as far as we can go with that, because we cannot shape and fashion this God. This God is beyond comprehension. And the amazing thing is, I was thinking about it this week, that God is the same one that knows you and I intimately. He has a relationship with us. How absolutely amazing. Verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Right, so what Paul is saying is the ignorance of you building idols and putting idols together and fashioning idols and devising plans to build temples and idols. He's saying God has overlooked this. In other words, God has sent prophets to Israel for many, many years. But now, God has come to you. And yesterday, you might have still been in your idolatrous state. But today, as I, Paul, stand in front of you, God has brought me here right now to you. Truly, these times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, right now, as Paul standing in front of everyone, he commands all men everywhere to repent. You know, a word not really taught in the churches today. A doctrine not taught in the churches today. And that is repentance. Repentance has been misconstrued and people think, yes, I've changed my mind about that sin, but how many of us change our mind about sin but still choose to live in that sin? That's not repentance, brothers and sisters. Repentance is coming to the point of realizing that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior, that God has died for you in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that has caused a contrite heart. A heart that is moved to not live like that man used to live or that woman used to live. That person that used to do ungodly things and worldly things, you don't want to do that because you're repulsed by it. Because the Holy Spirit is now living in you, a temple of God. And that's the main thing, is that repentance has been washed down. Repentance has been washed down to a state where People don't want to change their actions. They don't want to change their lives, yet they still want the benefits of salvation and Christianity. Sorry, brothers and sisters, that's not what our Jesus died for. Jesus Christ did not die for you so that you could sin and that you could suppose or hope that grace may abound. Paul writes about that in Romans 6. He says that is the most ridiculous thing, and it's a paraphrase, but it's a ridiculous thing. We cannot take for granted what Jesus Christ has done on the cross and say that I can continue sinning, because He will save me. Be careful, folk, that we do not overstep our day of grace. Do not overstep your day of grace. Repentance is mentioned 34 times in the New Testament. The word is metanoia, or what it, metanoia. 
And so, 17 times those words repent are in the Gospels. Jesus spoke of repentance. He said when he came to the house of Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent or ye shall likewise perish. Repentance is part of our walk, brothers and sisters. And if we understand repentance, I find joy in repentance. I find freedom in repentance. Yes, sometimes you may feel like a chastised child coming to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. But those whom he loves, he rebukes and chastens. That is the Lord that we serve. So remember, truly, these these times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. Jesus Christ is the man that has been ordained to come and judge the world in righteousness. Now the righteousness spoken of here is a condition which is acceptable to God. In other words, Jesus Christ's work on the cross was acceptable to God. He was the propitiation, the payment, the ransom for sins, the satisfaction on God's behalf. And therefore, He now is that righteousness which will come to judge the world. He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Therefore, why, if we have not repented, if we have not come to the acknowledge that we need a Savior and that Jesus is salvation and that He is resurrected, all these things are the substance of the word believe in God. Believe in Jesus. That is what the substance is. Why? Because he's going to come on a day when no one knows. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is today, if you do not know, or rather you know God, you know the Lord Jesus, do not take those things for granted. Love him until he comes to fetch you. Love him because he is all. He is glorious, He is amazing, He is magnificent. I don't have enough words to explain this God that we serve, but it's Him that we serve. It's Him that we glorify. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. You see, if Jesus is not risen, as Paul writes, your and my faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If I am standing here today preaching this message to you and Jesus is not risen, you understand I'm just wanting to talk and just wanting to film something. But I know Christ is risen. Do you know how Christ is risen? Do you know why we can say He's risen? It's a very simple process. Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. He appears to many people. Forty days later He ascends to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. He says to His disciples, When I am resurrected, I will send you another helper. That's how you will know that I am who I am. Jesus ascends. Ten days later, fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit is poured out at what is known as Pentecost. That's how you and I know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Because His promises are just. His promises are true. And God promised this by raising Him from the dead. So repentance is now due. Judgment is due. Why? Because God raised Paul from the dead. And when they heard this, and when they heard this on the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. Look what Jesus says about the resurrection in John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is still on earth. He knows he is going to be resurrected because he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
You see, if you die today, brothers and sisters, in Jesus, you know you have life everlasting with God. A joyous, tearless, painless life everlasting in the presence of Almighty God. However, if you die today without knowing Jesus, or uh, rather with rejecting the gospel message, you will be designated and given to a life of torment. Into the abyss, darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth. This is what the Lord Jesus spoke about mostly in the New Testament. In the Gospels, that was Jesus' ministry. He's trying to save people from everlasting hell. The judgment of God will prevail on those people. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Jesus says. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. From the dead. The living hope that we spoke of in the beginning, this hope that we need with COVID, this hope that we need with job losses, the hope that we need is Jesus Christ. Why? Because He has risen, folk, He has risen and He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Romans 6 5 to 6 For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. How? Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Is your old man crucified with Jesus? That the body of sin might be done away with. Amen with that. Take this body, Lord, this body of sin and get rid of it. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. So what they said to Paul now is, Alright Paul, you've presented everything. But as soon as Paul talks about the resurrection, he gets a lot of resistance. Jesus, in talking about the resurrection, got a lot of resistance from the Sadducees. The exact same picture here. Today, when you speak to someone about Jesus and you tell them he's risen from the dead, you will get resistance because people do not want to believe that. We are trying to place our finite minds on an infinite God. Rather, look at the heart, brothers and sisters, look at your own heart and realize that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. And that the life that you are living is not pleasing to Almighty God. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again. On this matter. So there was mostly resistance. A few of them were slightly open to coming back and hearing on this. And then Paul said in verse, and then Paul departed in verse 33. Verse 34, I hope again. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Aeropagite. So someone that was part of the Aeropagus, someone who was part of his council, he was convicted to the heart, he repented and he believed in Almighty God. He now knew that Zeus and Hermes and these people were just mere statues, but the one that was the unknown God, the one who determined his life from the one blood Adam, he is the one that Jesus Christ uh, has given life to. Dionysius says, I'm Arya. I'm not going to serve these people, I'm going to serve Almighty God. Dionysius the Oropagite, and uh, lastly, a woman named Damaris. A woman named Damaris and others with him. So there were others also that came with Paul and believed. Those are two names, Dionysius and Damaris, that we've never ever heard of. Yet they are people that were convicted by a beautiful message being preached by Paul, being taught to these men who were stuck in philosophy, searching new ideas. Repentance, righteousness and resurrection. That's the pattern of those last texts. Repent, brothers and sisters, the time is nigh. Jesus Christ is coming soon and you better be ready. I pray, I pray, I pray that you are ready because I know what's coming. 
I know my Bible. I understand the judgments that are going to be poured out on this earth. That is coming. And it's, it's not going to blow over. The Lord is the, the maker of the heavens and the earth. He is the one that has pre-apportioned this judgment coming upon this earth. It's coming, folk. Repent. Draw near unto the Lord. Know that His righteousness is what will save you. And know that His resurrection from the dead is appointed that time of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 15, as we close, we see the gospel presented by Paul. Paul says um, to the Corinthian church, he's talking about the gospel, he says, Christ died and rose again according to the scriptures. He says that Jesus came to die for the sinner. Jesus came to die for the sinner. And so Paul presents the gospel message there. And if you're ever stuck, go to the gospel there. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins. That if you repent and come to him, you will have everlasting life. John 6, 66 to 69. From that time, many of disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Brothers and sisters, today the scriptures have spoken to you about Paul presenting a case to the Athenians. He presented the living God. We've presented the living God to you. Come to the living God, folks. Come to Jesus. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. We know that in Him we live, and we move, and we have our being. Why? Because He lives in us. Because He gives us everlasting life. He's moved us from a place of complacency, a place of ungodliness and unrighteousness, and He's moved us to a place of everlasting life. Righteousness in the eyes of Almighty God. And in Him we have our being. Why? Because He ordains every single step as Christians. He ordains the moves that we have every day. Why? Because the righteousness of Jesus is upon us. Oh, brothers and sisters, my plea today is the, just to understand the glorious gospel. The gospel of the Almighty God. A message of triumph. A message of life. A message of forgiveness. A message of hope. A message of joy. That is the message that Paul was bringing to these Athenians who were steeped in idolatry. Run away from everything, folks, that is making you serve the world. Do not have an, even have a millimeter of your toe in the world. Come fully to the Son. Come to the Son. Come to Jesus. Rend your hearts to the living God, and He will give you everlasting life. Taste and see, O oh folk. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And repent. Turn from hopelessness and turn to the hope that is our Lord and Saviour. He is my Lord and Saviour and I proclaim Him to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, thank You for this message. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You were the unknown God that Paul presented. That He showed them that You are the God of heavens and earth. You created everything. You are outside of time, yet You are in creation, Lord. We can grope for You. We can search for You. We can find You. So Lord, we thank You for that. We thank You that you have ordained so many things in our lives. You are not made with gold or with silver or with stone. You are made from nothing, Lord. You are, you are everlasting. You made us, rather. That's what, I, that's what I want to say, Lord. You made us and you've given us the opportunity to serve you. Be with us, bless us and protect us, Lord. Let us be convicted to turn to the living God 
In Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Thank you. Amen.